We'll be in Luke chapter 19 today as we continue to share Jesus' stories and look at them uh, as, as, with fresh eyes as someone um, would, would see it for the first time and to look at it in a way that, it, that is relevant to the context and we're going to look at this, a story that was always one of my favorites because um, until about the ninth grade when I hit what must have been the first growth spurt of my life, I was the shortest kid in my class. Um, I, any group I was in, I, and there were children uh, two and three grade levels below me that were taller than I was for, for many, many years. Um, and I remember the summer that I grew and I came back to school in about the ninth or 10th grade. I mean, it was late. Um, and I was finally taller than some of the girls in my class. And so I, I'd become a man. And then I never grew after that. Uh, so it was the one time and that was it. And 5'8 and is just, you know, I don't understand. Um, God designed this world. Um, grass keeps growing. I have to cut it every week in the summertime. He had no trouble making me stop at a certain height. I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to ask him about that one day. But the story of Zacchaeus, because the, the song we learned in Sunday school, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Uh, I've always liked stories where the smaller person um, is kind of elevated. Uh, I like David and Goliath. I like Zacchaeus. Um, and this is a beautiful story. But interesting, because in many of the stories we've looked at, We've looked at how um, Jesus was accepted by his followers as a rabbi and as a teacher, and yet those he associated with were not the people that rabbis and teachers would have associated with. There's a story that happens in chapter 18 where a young man comes to Jesus and asks about what he must do to inherit eternal life. We refer to him as the rich young ruler. This was somebody that uh, rabbis would have spent time with. This was somebody that the teachers and the important religious people would have spent time with. Why? Well, <coughs> excuse me, he, he's faithful in his keeping of the law. He says so because Jesus says, well, you got to keep the law. And he says, well, I keep all the commandments. I do it all perfect. I want the secret sauce. I want the, I want the, the secret uh, cookbook recipe steps for eternal life. And, and then he and Jesus have this interaction about giving up his wealth. That's another Jesus story. But I do want to look at the contrast between a wealthy keeper of the law would have been the kind of person that would have been honored by the visit of a, a rabbi or a teacher or a priest, and they would have been the company that rabbis, teachers, and priests kept. They were, they were elite in society. They were elite in religion and the two went hand in hand in this time. They would have been a great giver of wealth to, um, to the high priests and someone who would have, they would have elevated each other's status. And we do that a lot. Um, if you watch the political scene in Washington, D.C., every so often they have these big dinners, more often than we realize. Uh, they have these big dinners uh, and dignitaries and important people come. And they're basically there to pat each other on the back and elevate one another's status. It's a symbiotic relationship. Celebrities are the same way. Uh, it's not enough that, uh, that a big celebrity has a 
party, they have to have the right people at that party. Um, and they elevate one another's status. Those who were the upper echelon of society and those who were the upper echelon of religion would have done that for one another, um, and money had a lot to do with that. In chapter 19, we're introduced to Zacchaeus, however. Now, Zacchaeus met one of the criteria. He had a lot of money. But what he didn't meet was the other criteria because he was not regarded as someone who would have elevated the status particularly of a religious person because the religious teachers represented Judaism, they represented their nation, they represented their culture, they represented their tribe, and they were the epitome of faithfulness. But tax collectors were the epitome of turncoats. They were the epitome of traitors. They were traitors to their own people, to their own nation, to their own ethnicity, and to their own faith. Tax collection worked uh, a little differently then than it does now. Now it's super easy. They just take it out of your paycheck. Uh, that's why you don't notice when the government raises them or lowers them, uh, except for the check you get uh, in your refund. That's, that's the only way we tell. It was really funny, and uh, having worked in the field of, I've never been an accountant, but I worked with accountants. Um, the the um, human behavior uh, around taxation is fascinating to me because uh, we allow for the deduction of um, a calculation of your income tax out of your paycheck. You really don't notice it. Um, and, and the other thing is the refund you get, um, which a refund means you gave the government an interest-free loan for a good portion of the year, just so you know. Um, when the last time uh, Congress cut taxes significantly, there were all these news stories about people who got a smaller refund in the spring, and they were angry. Well, you know, the president said he cut taxes, but my refund was smaller. Uh, yeah, that's because you kept more of your money, uh, and you didn't loan it to the government. It's, it's always been fascinating to me how people view taxation um, and how our country specifically views it. There was a time, though, where people would go around collect your taxes and they would keep ledgers and they would document and that kind of system has gone on from the beginning of civilization when taxation was a thing and people had to go around and keep these ledgers and that's fraught with corruption how can you know what taxes you owe I mean we can't even know today we live in an information age I have no idea how to calculate uh, I use a piece of software or get help from someone Someone would show up at your door and say, you owe taxes for this and this and this, and here's how much it is. Well, in the time of the Roman Empire, taxes were very, very important. The funding of the government was essential. They really, the Roman Empire, had a lot to do with how governments and, and civilizations from that time on would approach taxation and funding the government. It used to be you were a king and you ruled over a kingdom and you had these principalities that were in your kingdom and those principalities paid you tribute, helped help fund your army. And if they didn't do that, then you killed them and you took it anyway. Uh, the Roman government was interested in peace and expansion. And so they began the process of collecting taxes from all of the territories over which they ruled. And it was done in a much more civilized manner. Um, and uh, they approached 
people in the community to work for the Roman government. Now understand the Jewish people, they, they recognized that the Roman government ruled over them, but the Rome being over Jerusalem was the product of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that uh, Jerusalem and Israel, the Jewish people, were threatened by um, outside forces coming from the south, um, from North Africa and, and, and places like that. And they, Jerusalem was continually passed back and forth between different warring factions. And eventually they uh, entered into an agreement, an arrangement with Rome, who was trying to expand and supported Rome and allowed Rome to come and push out the oppressors which welcomed in new oppressors. So the, the history behind that is really fascinating because they invited Rome in. Uh, in fact, the Pharisees, which are essentially a political party of the, uh, of the religious leaders, the Pharisees are the ones that made that arrangement with Rome. So they were cozy, but they didn't like it. Um, they appreciated the protection of Rome, but they did not consider themselves Roman. They were Jewish. They were God's people. And they were faithful to God, and they kept the law, and they kept the rules about giving. So for a Jewish person to be enlisted by the Roman government to collect taxes to fund the Roman government was seen as already a bit improper. But on top of that, you have to understand how tax collectors made their money. They didn't just get a salary and go out there and collect. They were essentially commissioned salespeople. Very similar, if you ever watch mob movies and, and um, you know, movies set back in the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, when you know, you'd have a business, a dry cleaners or something, and one of the wise guys would come in and he'd say something like, you know, you've just opened your new dry cleaners, and, and he would say, you know, uh, me and my, my associates, we work this block, we provide protection for businesses. This can be a rough neighborhood, and there's kind of this undertone and they would always say something like, be ashamed if something should happen to your business, you know. Uh, that's kind of how the tax collectors would operate as well because the, the mob would collect protection money. You're paying for protection. If you didn't pay for protection, something might, bad might happen. It would happen from the people that were providing the protection. It's called a racket, racketeering, what, uh, what they were charged with when, when uh, those kinds of things were broken up. The, the tax collector situation of the first century, very similar. Um, you, you would go to the door, knock on the door and say, well, this is how much Rome is charging in taxes. I know what I've got to pay to Rome, but whatever I can collect on top of that, that's my cut. And so kind of this pyramid scheme developed where Rome is charging a certain amount and they send out an army of tax collectors they recruited from the neighborhood and those people collect the money and they take their cut, whatever they can get away with extorting from you. They were seen as criminals, extortionists, turncoats, because they put their own interests and the interests of Rome ahead of their fellow Israelite, their kinsmen. The betrayal that a person like Zacchaeus would have been labeled with made him absolutely an outsider for the religious elite. Now here is Jesus having begun traveling. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the end of his life. That's where he's headed. He's headed to Jerusalem. 
he's met with societal elite wealthy people who have asked him deep theological questions that he has essentially turned away disappointed. And now he's going to go and have an interaction with a person who is at the opposite end of the social spectrum. In chapter 19, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Remember, he's headed to Jerusalem. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Uh, a chief tax collector means he probably had some people working under him collecting taxes. So in, in this Amway style uh, arrangement that the tax collectors had, Zacchaeus was reaping the benefits of what the people below him were extorting as well. And so uh, he was perhaps very wealthy and seen by friends and neighbors, well, not friends, but neighbors, and those as having acquired that wealth through corrupt means, and rightly so. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. Uh, there are some people in Scripture that I feel bad for because of how they're described. Zacchaeus is one of them. We, we, we get a handful of verses here about Zacchaeus, and the only thing we really know about him besides his profession and his uh, income bracket is that he's a short guy. Um, elsewhere we read uh, about, well, there's a man called the, the Queen's Treasurer, but in other places he's referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch. I think he would prefer the first one be how he's remembered. See, I don't know why. We have limited information about certain people, and they get a label for all time, and it's a shame. But Zacchaeus was short, short in stature. And so he climbs, uh, he ran ahead on a head. So he gets away from the crowd. And we've already talked about the crowd that follows Jesus everywhere. And there is no personal space in their culture. So he runs ahead, gets outside of the crowd, and he climbs up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. Why is it that a man who has made quite a living and done so in less than scrupulous ways wants to see Jesus? What is the curiosity? What is the attraction? Maybe it's as simple as, I've heard something about this guy. What's all the fuss about? Maybe he's looking for something different. Maybe he's looking for acceptance. Maybe he's trying to fill something in his heart. Whatever it is, he wants to see Jesus. He wants to know what this is about. I think there are so many in our world today that even despite appearing to have everything they need in life, are seeking that one next thing. Seeking to fill the God-shaped hole in their heart. Seeking to be fulfilled and completed by something that the world cannot offer. I think there are souls all over our communities and in the various places that we interact with others who are seeking a tree to climb just to see, just to get over the crowd and to see what the fuss is about. So Zacchaeus is watching and uh, in order to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Now, I want you to imagine being Zacchaeus. You've never met the guy. You've never seen the guy. Uh, and you are a pariah in your community. You're completely uh, shunned. Jesus is walking down. He is known as a teacher, known as a rabbi. 
People are shouting. People are excited. People are praising him. He's somewhat of a celebrity, at least a minor celebrity in the area. And Jesus gets there and he looks up and he looks right at you. Now, it's got to feel a little bit silly. You're a grown man in a tree. And then he says your name. Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Of all the people, all the people who would have been much more accepted by society, the rich young ruler, he doesn't ask to go stay at his house. He doesn't ask to stay at the local Pharisee's house or the local rabbi's house. He goes to the tax collector, and Jesus knew who he was, and he calls him by name, and says, I'm going to go to your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. In that culture, now we, we have people over at our house to eat meals all the time, right? Uh, that, that's, we're getting back to that a little more um, than we have in the last couple of years. But having someone over for a meal is kind of a special thing welcoming them into your home, uh, hosting. Uh, but it's different in our culture, in Western cultures, than it is in Middle Eastern and Semitic cultures. To share a meal with someone is to accept responsibility for someone. Did you know that? When you share a meal with a person in their culture, you are claiming one another and you are creating an obligation to care for one another. Um, in fact, that, there have been accounts of this occurring with uh, American military who have found themselves stranded behind enemy lines or separated from, from their patrol, and they go into a village, and local villagers, uh, this happened in Afghanistan, at least one account I've read, uh, a local in the village brought the soldier inside and prepared him food, and when the Taliban came looking for the soldier, um, they knew he was in the house, but the people there said, we can't turn him over to you. He ate with us. We have to take care of him. We're obligated to him now. Uh, and the Taliban, because they recognize strict uh, customs of Islam, uh, they said, okay. They couldn't turn him over because they, they ate with him. They provided him food. It's a big deal. You are who you eat with in their culture. You are who you eat with. Uh, still that way over there. It was that way in Jesus' time as well. That's why it was so controversial, so scandalous that Jesus would share a meal with Zacchaeus. What a strange choice of the least among this group. Here you are in Jericho. It's not a small town. There's lots of people. There's plenty of people who rank higher socially who are considered cleaner. But that's not what Jesus is interested in. That's never who he's interested in. Sure, he has dinner with Pharisees. Sure, he has dinner with followers and disciples and apostles. But he also shares meals with unclean, with common. He touches those who no one else will touch. He speaks to those no one else will speak to. He's just not interested in playing that game. He didn't come to do that. 
So he goes and shares the meal with Zacchaeus despite the objections and the grumbling of everyone around. And by the way, it says when they, that's kind of a pronoun without an antecedent. We just, I mean, the crowd, but also maybe his apostles. You ever think about that? You know, they were human. They're human beings. I don't, I, I don't think they went everywhere with him and just said, oh, this is great, Jesus, whatever you say, this is what we're going to do. We see examples plenty of time where they question him and say, ah, maybe you shouldn't do that. And he says, no, I'm going to do it. They might have been right there with the crowd saying, I can't believe he's doing this. What's going to happen to us? We're associated with him. We see that concern from the apostles many times. Probably would have been the case here too in Jericho with Zacchaeus. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. We don't know about anything that may have transpired in the conversation that led Zacchaeus to this conclusion. Uh, maybe he realizes Ah, I'm not the kind of person, and maybe he's trying to impress Jesus. Maybe he's trying to do something nice. You know how you tidy up your house um, before people come over? Maybe he's trying to tidy up himself spiritually. Or maybe there's been something in his heart that's been gnawing at him. Or maybe something Jesus said that we don't have recorded here or that he knew of was so transformative I think there is something powerful about a Savior that calls us by name. And that's important. We are both simultaneously a collective and an individual in our relationship with God. As, as, as the church, as God's people, we interact with one another and with God collectively in settings where we sing and we pray, when we partake of the communion. We do something collective, and yet we also do it individually. The apostles met together and they broke bread collectively, but each must examine himself individually. We interact with God in those ways simultaneously. And Zacchaeus, to be called by name, we're not just seen as a group. Yeah, God recognizes us as a group, but we're not seen. He knows our name. He knows who we are, knows the number of hairs on our head. That may be hyperbole, but it's true. He knows you that well. He knows the thoughts of your mind, the things in your heart, the good and the bad. And yet he looks up and he still calls you by name. Never afraid to associate with you, despite what culture and society says, despite what the elite will say. Jesus is looking for people like us. He's looking for those who are on the outside, like Zacchaeus. He doesn't care to associate with those that the world says he must in order to have legitimacy. He cares about going to the ones who need him the most. And when he finds them, he calls them by name. 
so important. So important. For, them to, for someone to know your name is to have an intimate relationship, to have knowledge, to be known, to feel significant. And Zacchaeus was known by name, and so are we. And so, whatever the reason, there's some, something motivating and transformative about Jesus. But there must be a heart that's open to it. And how, why do I say that? Because you look at Zacchaeus, and whatever conversation he has in the interim between the tree and the house, we don't know. Whatever happens in the house, we don't really have a lot of that recorded. We just see a change of heart. We see a corrupt traitor to his people changing and making amends. Go back just a few verses and you see someone who acquired his wealth probably by honorable means, maybe by inheritance, and he wants nothing to do with giving up his wealth. He wants nothing to do with getting closer to Jesus on that basis. He's not interested in being transformed. So it's not simply the very presence of Christ that changes and transforms. It, there must be a penitent heart, a humble and receptive heart. Zacchaeus had it. Rich young ruler didn't. But Jesus goes to those who are seeking. He goes to those who are seeking him, not those who are seeking themselves. And there is in the distance a lone man just struggling to see Jesus. He can't get down there in the crowd and shoulder his way through to get to him. He has to go way up and hope to catch a glimpse. You and I are oftentimes just trying to catch a glimpse some days. Some days we feel right there face to face, don't we? But other days we're just trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And he will seek out those who are just trying to find him. And in the world that we live in, we will interact with those who are just trying to catch a glimpse, who are looking, trying to find anything to hold on to. We too must go to them, call them by name, and welcome them home into the family of God. Jesus says, after Zacchaeus makes this proclamation, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. It, and it wasn't, it wasn't the changing of the heart. It wasn't the action. It wasn't the paying back of wrong that saved Zacchaeus. Let's be clear about that. There wasn't a dollar figure on his salvation that if he fixed this thing and corrected this wrong that that would save him, it was that his heart was transformed to seeking after Jesus rather than himself. I don't know what he did for a living after that, or if he became the most honest and fair tax collector in the land. I do know that I'm going to get to meet him one day. I hope he's shorter than I am, but I'm going to get to meet him one day. And that'll be a fascinating conversation. I think we probably have more in common with Zacchaeus than we realize. And I think we encounter people that have a lot in common with us. We must be seekers of Jesus. 
And we must also be those who point the way to Jesus. Because that's who he's interested in talking to. And so should we. If you're in need of uh, prayer, encouragement, um, help in this journey that we're on, then we want to offer that to you. Um, and you can make that known to us, either, either at this time or any time. And we'd love to, to work with you. Dan's going to come and lead us in this closing song. And this morning, I hope you'll reflect as we depart from here on how we can seek those who are seeking Jesus. Dan?